Hello, folks, and welcome to Life Beat. I am your host, Tom Powell, and today with me I have Father Joshua Pappas. Pappas, right? Pappas, that's right. Father Pappas from Holy, Holy Trinity. Trinity Greek Orthodox Church. Okay, well, thank you for being here with us today, Father. It's good to be with you. Thank you for having me. Okay, now the Father today is going to share with us uh, some of his views, some of the uh, some views that might uh, that might. Uh, help the audience here get a better idea of what uh, what what folks in his church believe. Um, we're going to talk about things that we have talked about before, including last week or not last week, last month when we talked about the book of Jeremiah. We'll we'll talk about uh, that a little bit again today. Uh, but I want to jump right into it. Enough of me talking, uh, Father. Uh, I wanted to ask you today um, about your views, um, but also about the views of the Orthodox Church. Before we get into that, could you kind of just introduce yourself a little bit, tell folks about your church and how long you've been here, whatever you think might be relevant. I'm Father Joshua Pappas. I've been here at Holy Trinity for about three years. I've been a priest for six or seven years. Um, in the Holy Trinity, Greek Orthodox Church is part of the greater Orthodox Church of the world with various jurisdictions. Here in America, we have sort of an anomaly because with everybody immigrating here from other countries that were traditionally Orthodox, we've maintained those jurisdictional structures based on ethnicity. Uh, but we're getting to the point where we've been established for multiple generations now in America and thinking about and working toward moving beyond having multiple local bishops in an area. Uh, for example, a Greek Orthodox bishop, an Antiochian Orthodox bishop, a Romanian Orthodox bishop, a Russian Orthodox bishop, because at sort of a grassroots level, we're doing more together, and we're essentially one church. We're in communion with one another. Um, but that's the reason you'll see the sort of ethnic distinction at, uh, at different Orthodox churches in America. Um, I grew up Orthodox. So what do you mean when you say an ethnic distinction? You mean like people who attend a certain Orthodox church, it, it, ha it, re it corresponds with the area of the world that that church came from? Yes, essentially. Yeah. Okay, so somebody from a Greek Orthodox church would probably be Greek in their family heritage? Originally that was the case, but now that many of these churches have been established in America for so long, um, you'll find much more diversity uh -huh. at, at different Orthodox parishes. So for example, here, we originally had all Greek Orthodox immigrants from the country of Greece. Over time, though, as people have discovered Orthodoxy, as other immigrants have come to America who are Orthodox, but don't have their own ethnically tied mm. Orthodox presence here in Grand Rapids, uh, people have just sort of been absorbed into the church. So we become a very diverse community with Greek-American immigrants, with uh, Bulgarian Orthodox, with Romanian Orthodox, with Serbian Orthodox, and now especially in the last 25, 30 years, and even more so in the last 5 to 10 years, uh, an increasing number of converts, people who mm. were not born Orthodox, but have discovered Orthodoxy, usually from a Christian background, other Christian backgrounds, uh, but not necessarily, 
who have become Orthodox. And you're seeing that all over uh, the Orthodox churches in America, where we've become much more diverse communities. So maybe maybe initially, as you've kind of said, somebody from a Greek Orthodox church or the Greek Orthodox church in a local uh, town uh, would be full of people that are of Greek heritage. But now, and it kind of makes sense, uh, somebody comes from Romania or some other country, uh, and then they find, well, where we have the same church, just uh, just different countries different country of origin, and so they probably feel at home, uh, much more at home in a Greek uh, Orthodox church than they might have felt anywhere else, despite the fact that they're not Greek. Very much so, yeah. And that's essentially why we're an English-oriented and English-speaking community, which is the direction that, that most Orthodox parishes have gone across the country. We consider ourselves, though, the true unbroken original church, that there was a major split in the 11th century in the year 1054 between the East and West. The West, Rome, became separate from the other four ancient patriarchates of Constantinople, modern-day Istanbul, Antioch, Alexandria, and Jerusalem. And then later on in the 16th century, there was the, the further split with the Protestant Reformation. We consider ourselves the original unbroken church connected to those four ancient patriarchates without any breaks along uh, the movement throughout history. So you guys have been around for a while. We've been around. All right, well, I wanna know uh, what the Orthodox Church, uh, where the Orthodox Church typically stands on the issue of abortion and why. Now, you and I have talked a little bit about it before. This is my second time meeting you, but it's our audience's first time meeting you. So tell us about where the Orthodox Church uh, typically stands on this issue. Essentially, we're categorically for the sanctity of every human life. Um, every person without exception is infinitely precious and infinitely valuable in the eyes of God, even if we can't appreciate that preciousness and value because of our own human limitations. So we would say we're not the arbiters of value. We don't determine any of that. God the Creator designates value. And if we're all made in God's image, which all Christians can, can agree on, uh, then there's something divine within us. There's something immortal and eternal and divinely precious within us, even if that intrinsic divinity and immortality is difficult to perceive because of our own superficial and empirical standards we might place on it, or even if that divinity is distorted or disfigured, disfigured in any way, it's still there. And we would say Christ came to see that in every person, to call out that immortality, that eternity, and that beauty, and to restore it to wholeness, even, it, even if it's been distorted in some sort of way, or even if we can't fully appreciate it. Do you, do you recall before when, we, when you and I discussed the Orthodox Church, you mentioned something about John the Baptist and his conception? Um, that was something I, I hadn't really heard before. Do you mind sharing that with our audience? Sure. We celebrate conceptions of people, conceptions within the womb, as major feasts of our church, as liturgical celebrations throughout the year. So the feast of uh, the conception of St. John the Baptist, for example, we celebrate actually soon on September 23rd when Zacharias and Elizabeth in their old age still 
were barren, had not had any children. Zacharias, the high priest that year, uh, had a vision, an angelic vision, in which he was told, you will conceive a child, a son. He didn't believe it, as we know from Scripture, the account in, in Luke chapter 1. And for that, he was rendered mute. He wasn't able to talk until St. John the Baptist was born. But that conception of St. John the Baptist in the womb, we celebrate as a feast of our church on September 23rd. Likewise, we celebrate the conception of the Virgin Mary, the Mother of God, the Theotokos, on December 9th. And more familiar to Christians, we all celebrate the conception of Christ, which we call the Annunciation. Hmm. Archangel Gabriel announcing the good news that God is with us, he'll be born with us, and of course that takes place nine months before the birth of Christ on March 25th. So beyond beyond the, the typical Christian response, which is kind of apologetic in nature, hey, we have these these verses which indicate to us that life begins at conception. Uh, the Orthodox Church also in her tradition recognizes life from conception. It recognizes these people's value from their conception. Just as the ethos, just as the way of life, I mean, the question of a, if a life is worth uh, living or if a life is legitimate or, or the value of a life, that's not even a question in Orthodoxy or in Christianity from the very beginning. The infinite value of human life beginning at the moment of conception was just built into the fabric of the church. We would say that is scripture and we you know, scripture's not just words, we appropriate it and we live scripture. We would call that our tradition. Tradition is this sort of living dynamism of the appropriate the appropriation of scripture, the the voice and the breath of the Holy Spirit in the the worshiping community. And so again, this isn't even a, a question in, in Orthodoxy, the sanctity of life. It's just a sort of a sort of given. Great. Well, hey, diving, diving into Scripture for a moment, I wanted to read a couple verses from Jeremiah. These verses together make up kind of a, a whole paragraph, so bear with us, folks. I'm going to read Jeremiah chapter 19, verses 3 and 4. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 19, verses 3 and 4. We have the Bible. Uh, uh, the Bible says, so I believe here it's God speaking to Jerem- through Jeremiah, and he says, And say, Hear ye the word of the Lord, O kings of Judah, and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Now, this takes place, uh, you know, as they're being um, kind of threatened by Babylon. Eventually, they go into captivity in Babylon. When this is written, I don't know if they were already in captivity or not. Sometimes the timeline in Jeremiah is a little bit confusing. Uh, But it says, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will bring evil upon this place, the which, whosoever heareth it, his ears shall tingle, because they have forsaken me, and have estranged this place, And have burned incense in it unto other gods, whom neither they nor their fathers have known, nor the kings of Judah, and have filled this place with the blood of the innocents. So, Father, here's kind of the question that comes from the verse. It seems that idolatry and the blood of the innocents were the two reasons why Judah was eventually judged. Would you say that America is in danger of judgment for the innocent blood that has been shed here? It's a good question. I would say judgment is for God alone. I'm not a prophet. I'm just a sinner. I'm, I'm a weak person. It's a good idea not to claim the title of prophet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> even though my patron saint was a, a prophet, uh, Saint Joshua, son of Nun. I, we would say there is a clear di- dynamic in the church of this prophetic tradition of God revealing something very clearly to a person mm-hmm. or to a group of people and that being expressed to the world. We would be careful about these kinds of things. Um, Saint right. Isaac, you, would, you, would, you would be careful if, if you don't know something is from the Lord to say, here is my prophecy. So yes, so you're yeah. kind of giving us that 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 I don't know. You're giving us this introduction that, to your answer that you're not claiming to be a prophet, but but where do you see uh, where do you see America um, as it relates to kind of the historical trend that that plays out in the Bible? We would say it's certainly problematic um, some of the things we're seeing, but but again, just to kind of finish the thought. I would say I'm in the church because I'm a sinner, as as St. Isaac the Syrian says. The church is not the assembly of the righteous people, but it's the crowd of sinners who are repenting and who are seeking eternal life. So if I'm more sensitized to the infinite value of every person, including unborn persons, then this is not something I've necessarily earned or something that makes me better than somebody else or in a position to judge somebody else. It's simply a gift from God. So a big part of our enterprise is just working to sensitize people to the preciousness of their life, of all life, beginning with our own life, because our own lives can appear very mundane and ordinary and, and really not worth living, but our lives are profound and extraordinary and, and holy and unimaginably, unimaginably beautiful. And the more we can get that right ourselves, the more we're going to be sensitized to, sensitized of that uh, toward the people around us. There's a little quote I want to share from uh, a contemporary saint who passed away in the early 1990s in Greece, Saint Paisios. Um, this is in reference to a verse from Holy Week. Um, it's from uh, Isaiah's book, mm-hmm. um, but it mirrors uh, the, the quote that you pulled out of Jeremiah here in bringing evils upon this place, which almost seems like a curse, like we wish something bad for somebody. So some people were concerned about this and approached St. Paisios and said, is it appropriate for, for us to wish evils on somebody? Can you explain this to me? And he said, uh, quote, when barbarians are attacking and they're ready to destroy people, the people are praying that their enemies encounter obstacles, that their chariots break down and their horses get harmed. Is that good or bad? That's what this means, that these people might run into obstacles. It's not a curse, end quote. So our sort of spiritual application of that would be those who are, are misguided, those who are seeking glory in any earthly sense, we hope that they would encounter stumbling blocks so that they can be sort of humbled hmm. by God and become more sensitive to the profundity of every life and of all of life for their own benefit, for the sake of their salvation. So we can pray for 
and work toward, for example, as you do very diligently uh, in, in the group that you work with, we can pray and work toward obstacles that sort of inhibit the numbness that allows us to so easily discount certain lives or to consider some lives less than others or to place a lower value on lives. Um, we can sort of work toward more sensitivity so that we're not so comfortable taking life um, and that we wouldn't so comfortably take a life or see a life taken and not mourn that life regardless of who the person is. Hmm. Um, so I uh, you talk a little bit about kind of wishing evil, like praying for these obstacles. I'm reminded of Elijah praying that there would be no rain um, in order to see people eventually say, wow, the Lord, he is God, as they say when, when fire comes down uh, from heaven. I don't, Amen. I imagine they wouldn't have said that if they hadn't endured three and a half years of rain, which uh, was not necessarily, though Elijah prayed for it, Elijah didn't inflict this pain on them. God chose for there to not be any rain, and so there wasn't. Uh, it was it was His decision to do so. And then in Jeremiah and Isaiah's case, as you've brought up Isaiah, they they preached during similar times, only a couple generations apart, really. Um, um, it's probably less than hundred years between the two of them. Um, I'm not exactly sure how it lines up, but pretty close. And uh, they talked about uh, Isaiah preached during the time of. Uh, it's Manasseh or Manassas. He's Manasseh, uh, talking about the innocent life that Manasseh shed in Jerusalem, and then Jeremiah comes along a little later and says, "God's not going to pardon what happened because you guys are continuing to do this." Whereas Manasseh sacrificed babies to Moloch, the people in Jeremiah's day were sacrificing children to Baal. In our time. It, it seems that people are still committing sacrifice of children. In fact, I wouldn't say it seems, though many times abortion doesn't take place in sort of a child sacrifice type of ritual, that does actually happen in America. And so my, my question, my concern is at, at this time, will America, if she fails to repent, face the same kind of judgment that Judah faced for, for the blood, innocent blood that was shed in Jerusalem? Does that question make sense? It does. I, I can't really answer it, though, because, again, that's for, that's for God to decide. I, I would say that's precisely what we're praying for, though, is our sort of collective repentance. Hmm. There is something to be said for the repentance of, of nations and actual groups of people and not just individuals. It always begins at the individual level, but it can trickle out and should trickle out into a, a sort of collective whole. So my hope and prayer is that, well, the reality is that there is a massive drought going on of, of biblical proportions, and there is a, a massive amount of suffering going on, but that's, that's occurring at a quiet level. That's the people who are, who are having abortions and are suffering tremendously, right. or people who are suffering uh, within family systems and friend systems from... Um, from the taking uh, of innocent life. And we would hope that that more silent suffering um, initiates a serious movement and a serious change and a serious return toward God. But collectively, we're not going to be able to do it unless we're doing it individually. 
So you, you mentioned kind of as just like a, a sub point of your answer just there that people who are having abortions are also suffering. Abortion doesn't, isn't, it is obviously the taking of an innocent life, but that, that is not the only person that's suffering. The, the mother is suffering probably prior to entering into that situation and she'll likely suffer after it. She'll suffer with, she'll suffer with guilt or regret. Beforehand, she's suffering with doubt and fear and probably all of those emotions are at play um, based case, case by case on what's going on. So with, with that in mind, understanding that people are coming to abortion, oftentimes it's, it's a desire to escape something that they fear, or it's, it might be something that they shouldn't fear. You know, they fear the responsibility of being a parent. You and I are both parents. You and I both have kids. We, we, we don't fear being parents. Um, but sometimes I do, that's a fear. I do fear. <laughs> you do fear? Parent, yeah. uh, but well, I have no maybe, choice. Maybe I have I, to hang in there. Maybe I should fear. Uh, maybe that would be wise. Uh, but sometimes the fear is something much more drastic than just not wanting to be a parent. They're afraid that they could uh, lose the person they're dating. They're afraid that they could lose the person they're married to. They're afraid that they could lose out on big opportunities that matter a lot to them. It's more than just the fear of a life change. It's the fear of other losses. So knowing that, if you knew someone who was considering having an abortion, what would you say to them? And how can we help people to choose life? I suppose there are a few tiers um, in responding to that question. The most important thing, uh, I would think, which I've had some experience with and, and many other priests have, and just caring people have had experience, uh, is the first thing is, you know, we're, we're here for you. You're not suffering on your own. You're not dealing with this, your predicament and your pain completely on your own. Um, as St. Paul says very clearly, bear one another's burdens, and thus you'll fulfill the law of Christ. So, And as he says elsewhere, the, the body of Christ is a single body with many members. If one member rejoices, all rejoice together with it. If one suffers, all suffer together with it. So, you know, you're suffering and we're suffering with you. You're struggling and we're struggling with you. And I think we have to take that a little bit further though too um, and be very clear and deliberate and then prepared to support people um, not just spiritually and psychologically which of course the church does but but also socially um, to have people in place within the church community um, uh, to help people financially um, to to sort of had all the bases covered for why people would even entertain a situation like this, because, as you brought up, you know you do you you commit the act of abortion to to avoid something that feels completely unbearable. I can't do it. This is why people take their own lives as well. The pain is too great. I can't bear it. I have to escape from it. So. Okay, you're there, you're in a dark corner, but we're right there with you, and we will do anything for you. We're praying for you, and we're going to support you in any sort of way. It, it feels unbearable, but what is going to be far more unbearable is sort of taking the easy road out and removing something that hurts just to escape, just to avoid. That's going to lead to a lot more suffering. So let's be with you in your suffering address your suffering and we'll bear it with you and, and we have 
the ultimate hope that darkness never prevails, that, that light overcomes the darkness. So we, we would first want to be with the person. Mm -hmm. Hey, we're, we're here for you. We love you. We're part of your family. We're with you. Um, and I would think the biggest part of that is just listening to a person to begin with. And then once you get a little bit further, if you're able to work with people, you know, why has God allowed this predicament in your life? Why has God allowed this unwanted pregnancy? Many times it's the result of irresponsible decision-making and irresponsible use of our bodies. Our bodies are not our own. They've been given to us by God, and we need to be good stewards of them. We're not very good stewards of our time, of our bodies. I'm not talking at buddy. I'm, I'm, I'm talking to myself here as well. Um, so why has God allowed this in your life? Um, many times we will not be able to answer that question, um, but it's worth asking because God has allowed it for some... Mm -hmm. God is a part of this very difficult situation in, that you're in right now. Um, and if you're very culpable, and many people are very culpable, there are many exceptions as well, well God can be pushing us to think a little bit more deeply about my, my life, my lifestyle, my responsibilities, my decisions, my sexuality, my relationships, so on and so forth. The next tier, I would say, is the sort of general consciousness of the church that can be carefully applied to somebody in a very difficult situation, in painful situation. Um, and part of that is an extension of things that we should be talking about and preaching about regularly in the church. Um, one thing that comes to mind is just the word autonomy which comes from the Greek word aftonomos, aftonomos. It's a, a compound Greek word, meaning essentially that you're a law unto yourself. That is, I'm free. I can do whatever I want. We would say God has given us this freedom simply to give it back to him. God gives me my freedom, my autonomy, so that I can surrender it willingly back to him because we didn't earn this life. This life was given to us. So we would say that's the sort of thrust of Christian discipleship. I'm free. Sure, I can do whatever I want, but I choose to make myself a slave to Christ, and by extension, a slave to everybody around me, a slave to my neighbor, including my unborn child. A living sacrifice, you might say. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, as St. Paul says so clearly. I interrupted yeah. you. Keep going. No, go ahead. Yeah. Um, and so there's many ways we live that out in, in the Orthodox Christian life because that's not easy. That means I have to deny myself. I have to say no to myself. I need to be obedient to God, which is not easy, and that requires ascetic practices, an entire ethos. And so this is part of the central message of the gospel that we sort of preach in general and try to engraft onto people's hearts living it ourselves first, and that has to be kind of carefully applied to people who are struggling with difficult decisions. So you don't deny this existence of autonomy and freedom, but freedom means that you're also responsible. You have to take responsibility for your actions. Um, I just That's uh, what's so painful as a parent, though, because your kids are 
are going to do whatever they're going to do, right? Um, so it, it's, we can't force that responsibility onto people. We can't coerce them just as God gives us a stupid amount of freedom and uh, to do whatever we'd like, which we abuse in all sorts of ways. But that's just the nature of love. Love doesn't have any coercion. Mm. But we want to foster that and push people into that. Now, we've only got about one minute left, okay, but I wanted to me. throw in the speedy, speedy question yes. and get a speedy answer. Um, people, you, you kind of talked about like what you, how you would talk to somebody who is considering an abortion. How would that person know they could come to you in the first place? Many people don't come to me, and that's probably a reflection of my own limitations and weakness and sinfulness. At a grassroots level, it's important for a priest not just to be a priest enforcing things in a sort of black and white manner, but, but a pastor who, who loves the people um, and is with the people, meeting the people where they are. And then sort of the, the more general response I would give is that's who the church is. The church is our, our favorite metaphor in the Orthodox tradition is the church is a hospital. It's the place where we go for healing. It's the place where we go uh, to become whole. And the more we really live that metaphor, um, the more people are just going to naturally come. They're going to come seek the priest. They're going to come seek the sacraments. They're going to come seek the comfort and the healing that we can find in the church in a, in a way more profound than, than anywhere else. So, God willing, we're just the church and, and not just a sort of institutional semblance of the church but we're really the church and, and people will come but we have a lot of work to do for people to feel more comfortable so in other that. words there is no quick fix you can't just say this one sentence from the pulpit and now it's covered but rather you show with your life you, sh you show the love of christ to people um and if that's demonstrated theoretically people are going to be more likely to come to you when they have a real problem like what we've been discussing well father thank you for being with us today thank you folks for listening we are out of time uh, so i'll see you guys in the next one god bless